Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to be here again. In some ways, um, my body is freaking out <laughs> because of how cold it is. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've just come from spending a week in Portland and it just, it snowed also when I was in Portland. And, um, uh, but it wasn't cold, you know. So um, it's really lovely to be back in Ontario and also um, intense. Yeah. <laughs> it gets colder. It gets colder. <clears throat> Normally when I show up uh, to do a weekend like this on the Friday night I give a talk. Um, I usually write the description of the talk on the poster as vague as possible so that I can talk about whatever's you know, going on for me. Um, but uh, because I've been spending a fair amount of time uh, recently in the U.S., I feel like uh, since there's uh, been uh, a convergence of um, both the shock and after effect of the election, and also uh, because for all of us, um, it's holiday season, um, and holiday season can bring um, joy, but it can also bring uh, intense loneliness and instability. And also, uh, if you spend time with other people, or if you uh, are not invited to parties, um, and you're at home and you see other people rejoicing, uh, that can also give rise to all kinds of uh, sangskaras, we say and uh, can create some suffering for, for all of us in different ways. And also because uh, it's consumer time from Black Friday onwards. Um, I think um, the uh, idea of just talking about uh, meditative practice and contemplative practice in large ways seems somehow inappropriate. And it feels like uh, we also should be talking about some of these issues because it's what we're swimming in right now. And um, I wanted to talk about these issues or explore these issues from the perspective of practice. 
which is if somebody has a contemplative practice, if someone has a spiritual practice, uh, how do you bring that uh, to bear uh, in these times which are turbulent and unstable? And maybe you don't feel it to the same degree in Ottawa, I don't know, uh, but in the United States right now, um, people who are in marginalized communities, whether it's uh, Latino communities, uh, people who've been um, in the margins for various reasons, whether it's their uh, ability or their sexuality, are really feeling uh, vulnerable right now. And so uh, the issue for me that really comes up is how our practice can um, uh, create uh, compassion, not just uh, inside of our small hearts, which are pretty small, uh, but also within our relationships and within our families and within our communities and within the culture as a whole. So that we can basically move on from this idea that there's like an inner practice that you do and like a social practice that you do. And to see that we just made up that idea. That actually uh, all practice is uh, inner practice and social practice. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, if that's okay. And I'll speak maybe for an hour, and then we'll have a little break, and then we'll talk together. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a discussion period. Uh, does this sound okay? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> to structure what we're going to study all weekend, uh, we're going to look at a text. I think the last time I was here, we looked at the Yoga Sutra. Uh, this time, we're going to use a Tibetan text, which you all have a copy of, I think, and if you don't, it's here. Um, you have a copy of the handout. And uh, when I was in Portland, I was using this as a teaching text, and um, so I feel deep inside it right now, or it's deep inside me right now, and I'm really excited to, to kind of just delve in with you. <coughs> Does everybody have a copy? Okay. And, and you can just look at it as much as you want. Um, we're going to be starting with um, point uh, three, which is at the end of the first page, and it starts with uh, slogan 11. Um, and we're going to try and get through about 10 slogans this weekend, if, if all goes well. Which basically means if nobody has any questions. <laughs> so uh, this is a teaching that comes from Tibet. Um, it was developed over about a 300 year period from 900 to 1200 of this era. Um, Atisha, who was a Bengali master, uh, is said to be the originator of this text, and it has antecedents in Sumatra um, and, uh, and in India. And Lojong, Lo is mind, and Jong means uh, training. And even though this is often called a mind training practice, or this text is called mind training practice, 
I like to translate it instead of um, training one's attitude. Because nowadays, we're living in a culture where we think of mind as brain or as something in your head. Um, but I like to think of this as a practice of training your attitude. In other words, it's a practice that as you do over time gives you a different uh, kind of sensibility or uh, trains your attitude. And I think all of us would agree that most of the time we have a pretty good attitude. But once in a while, when things get tough especially, um, our attitude is affected and we can get uh, crabby and miserable and down or just altogether confused and we don't know how to move or we don't know how to take action or we don't know how to respond to people we love or how to respond to suffering. And so when things are relatively balanced, we should train our attitude. We should train our attitude so it's a resource that's there all the time. And we also uh, need to learn from um, athletes. Because athletes in the off-season, they train their uh, potential injury areas. So if you're a tennis player, one of the areas that you can injure very easily because you move sideways on the Tennis, I'm making this up because I don't know anything about tennis, but, uh, but one, of the, one, of the, one of the areas you can injure very easily is your ankles, right? Because you move sideways on the court, it's easy to twist your ankle. So in the off-season, uh, when you're not you know, competing as much, one of the things that uh, a tennis player will do is they will train on twisted ankles. You'll put your ankle in a twisted position and learn how to get strength there so that when you end up in a game in that position, then you have strength in that position and you won't get injured. So the same is true for us. We need to train in how to be awake in all of our different emotional states, uh, not just feeling calm, not just when we're feeling peaceful, not just when we're blissed out, but also we need to learn how to be awake when we're completely confused or when we're feeling craving or when we're in old patterns of uh, grasping. We need to be awake in those patterns also so that when they become more intense, which they will, um, and if you don't think they will, uh, they will, <laughs> then... Uh, then we have real tools and, and real skills. So, um, you'll notice that each section here is divided into a slogan. Uh, the term slogan, I think, was made very popular by Pima Chodron. If you read her work, she relies a lot on this text in her teachings. And so she talks a lot about training with slogans. Um, but I like to call them bumper stickers. <laughs> Um, because if you actually read through the text, I think all of these would make very, very good bumper stickers. And not only that, what are slogans? Slogans are something you train in so that when you bump into something, they're stuck to the thing you bump into. And they remind you again that whatever you bump into is a teaching. <laughs> <laughs> 
can be a practice. The teaching assumes that you have a practice already that is creating some calmness and reducing reactivity. So whether it's a basic mindfulness practice or some kind of contemplative practice that teaches you how to use an object like your breathing or your body to be able to calm down your reactivity. And then the text is suggesting that in this space of relative calmness, you start using that space not to hang out, because most of us just want to hang out in that space, but to actually use that space of calmness to start training your attitude, to actually bring in these bumper stickers, to bring in these pithy slogans, and to start to train your attitude. And one way to do that is just to pick one a day. You know? And that day, you just really train that practice, and you see how it manifests. And there's 59 of them. So you have two months of training, and then you start at the beginning again. And it also, another thing about the text before we jump in, is it comes out of a tradition that uses a term that's important to unpack, which is a bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. Um, bodhi is uh, to awaken, to be awake. And um, chitta is like a character. Um, <clears throat> so, <coughs> or it can be attitude. So, the practices are meant to awaken one's attitude. So that one has an attitude of awakening. This is a really important point. So, your attitude is one of awakening which is kind of like um, what happens when certain people come to practice who have uh, tried everything else already. They've tried um, using the accumulation of money or stuff, or they've tried um, spiritual practices that are designed to get you out of here. You know those kind? Um, And uh, when they're really honest with themselves, they're still working with all the same emotional plumbing that they had uh, earlier. Maybe it's a little bit smoother, um, but maybe not so much has changed. And what's really needed is um, to develop a basic attitude that waking up to what's happening in the here and the now is pretty much the only way to live. (laughs) Because your life can only happen right now. It can't happen uh, outside of right now. And not only can it not happen outside of right now, but uh, right now is too big for you to understand. So trying to also understand what right now is, is not even really um, possible without uh, stories, good stories. But the problem with good stories is 
They're just good stories. So we develop this attitude, which is we're going to wake up to what's actually happening right now, even though what's happening right now might be really sad or really painful or really uncomfortable and uh, not what you want. Have I described your week? (laughs) (laughs) And traditionally it's said that when someone has bodhicitta, which is this attitude to be awake, that uh, over time, if they keep up this attitude, um, compassion starts to generate and they're grasping to the illusion of self begins to fall away. Begins to fall away. So, let me read what the Dalai Lama has to say about bodhicitta, because this is really lovely. He says, uh, Speaking of my experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me When I think about it, I can't find in myself any especially good qualities, except for one thing. That is the kind heart which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to try and develop within myself. I could just stop there. Isn't that so wonderful? He does his best to try and develop this kind of heart. Of course, he says, there are moments when I get angry. But in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I can really practice bodhicitta. But it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. So just that one part is really a great teaching, which is... Even though I get angry, I don't hold a grudge against anybody. So that's a very good teaching for life. And a very good teaching for death, too, I think. Even though I get angry, because we want to get angry. Of course it's natural to get angry. So it seems like what he's saying is an awakened person a person with the attitude of uh, awake, awakening, is somebody who feels more than we do. Like we only can feel this much. Because when you start to get to the outer end of the spectrum of what you feel, you get really reactive. You know? If it's pleasurable, you really want to keep it. And if it's unpleasurable, you really want to dismiss it or delete it somehow. So what I hear the Dalai Lama saying is, a person who is awake is somebody whose spectrum of feeling is actually much greater than our spectrum of feeling. But they just don't have any uh, grudge. Not just with anger, but I would probably guess with... uh, with any of the emotions. Imagine if you could feel 
intense pleasure and not uh, try to cling to it. Imagine if you could feel um, craving of the worst kind. Like the worst kind of craving would be to try and uh, numb something unpleasant. And, uh, and you just feel it. You feel both the unpleasant and also the desire to numb it. But you don't do anything about it. You just feel both at the same time. So this is kind of this vision of bodhicitta. And it's really important that you understand that this is coming around 900 of the common era. In other words, gone are the days where enlightenment is about something final that takes you out of here. But now we have a whole new way of thinking about practice as something that's ongoing. So instead of enlightenment, it's awakening. It's relational. It includes other people. And there's nowhere to go. <laughs> there's nowhere to go. In fact, the whole idea that there was somewhere to go was actually the problem in the first place. You see? And that's a really interesting thing because you see that um, people who have trauma backgrounds, people who have grief that's been unprocessed, people who have painful psychological issues that they're unable to uh, digest are attracted to meditative practices that are more focused on getting out of here, more focused on purity and transcendence. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And they think mindfulness practice is like really boring. It would be like eating brown rice all the time. You know? Sorry if some of you eat brown rice all the time. But it's just like really boring, really just mundane. But actually it's a way more difficult practice in a way to try and just keep up to what's happening in the present moment, rather than trying to get over it somehow, or above it somehow, or beyond it somehow. So you're getting a sense of what I mean by bodhicitta? It's kind of like the spirit to be awake to what's happening now without needing to frame the now as even being divine. Right? Or even saying it's sacred. Like, even doing that is another move to make it something. It's just this. I remember I once had a teacher who said, it is it. I used to think about that a lot, because you can do it backwards. Like, it is it, and then it is it. And then you could add the phrase to itself, like, it is it, is it. <laughs> Until it just like turns into a mandala, you know. It is it, is it. <laughs> and if anybody ever asks you like a really deep existential question, you could say to them, it. 
<laughs> is it. <laughs> My understanding this is, is that one of the things we're doing in movement practice and one of the things we're doing also in stillness practice is to uh, rediscover our natural irradiance, but also train somatically and psychologically um, to be responsive. We're training to be able to respond to what's happening in and around us, moment to moment. And that training has to be both in our attitude and also in our body. Also, the arising of bodhicitta is uh, the arising of a value. And the value is um, belonging. That we recognize that deep down, what we most want, deeper than anything, is to feel a sense of belonging. And what others want and what we need to see in others, behind their symptoms, behind their stupid actions, behind their mean emails, is they just want to belong also. Why do overdose rates go down <clears throat> when you have safe injection sites? Well, it's not because the drugs are getting tested. It's because there's other people. There are other people. Overdose rates go down because you have company. There's other people around. It's kind of amazing. So bodhicitta is like having a sudden realization. Oh my God, all these years, I've only been thinking about my suffering. And I... I I've kind of wanted to help other people, but I've never really seen them. I've seen the issue, I've seen my idea about the issue, I see my reactivity, but I haven't actually seen other people like they're me. And now I'm willing to just explore the notion that I could exchange my happiness for other people's suffering. Think about that. Because you realize that you can't be happy. Sorry, but you can't actually be happy. I'm not sure who told us that we were all supposed to be happy, but this is kind of a funny idea that we're all supposed to be happy. Am I allowed to say that here? I don't know if you're allowed to say that in a yoga center. And what that means in our day-to-day -day life is when things get difficult, what we start doing is we pull the people 
uh, near us even closer. If something's difficult for another person that's uh, close to us, we pull them closer. And then, if something's difficult for ourselves, we start allowing ourselves to be needy and to pull the people near us even closer. One of the things that um, upsets me a lot in the yoga world and in the mindfulness community also is if there's a situation where somebody's helping another person. Nowadays, the first thing that I hear people say to somebody who's doing some caregiving for somebody is, how are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking care of yourself? And now these days, I'm starting to feel a little bit like bothered by this as the first move. How are you looking after yourself? If you're in a relationship where someone's really dependent on you and you try to get some space to look after yourself, if something's acute, I mean, and it creates stress in the relationship, then you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Because that'll make you more stressed. No amount of massage is going to, like, help that. So the basic idea of bodhisattva practice, of bodhicitta practice, is we care rather than self-care. Rather than me care, we just think about the network. We care. And I think most of us know that if you are a caregiver for long periods of time, there can be burnout, of course. But you still can't do self-care because it doesn't work. The only care you can do is network care, right? You need other people to do self-care. There's no, like, thing in yourself you can do 100%. Yeah, you can practice mindfulness, and you can learn how to sit still and so on, but you need to do it with other people. They should have a safe bodhicitta injection site (laughs) where like during it should be like a pop-up place for holiday season because I'm sure the government wouldn't like this oh sorry I'm not allowed to talk about the government here Um, so basically what would happen would be um, you'd be like really overwhelmed during holiday season trying to get gifts and whatever and you could like pop into this place and they will inject you with bodhisattva energy Which, in the way it would look, people would just be like hanging out and you would just talk to them. And it would become really popular because all these people would be coming out really quite, you know, content. So let me sum up. When really difficult things happen in your life, the reason why they're so painful is because they happen to a narrow self. When difficulty happens for you, and they happen to a wider self, 
there's a larger margin for being able to see what's going on. And then it's okay. And then we can do what's suggested in point three, which is to transform all bad circumstances into our path. Everything that comes up that we call BAD bad, we can turn into a path. Not just that we say, oh, that's my path, but we can actually have an attitude where we say, um, it is it. Which is not the same saying as it is what it is. Which I don't know what that means. To me, that just, when I hear people say that, it just seems like deflecting or something. It is what it is. Do you feel anything? <laughs> well, it is what it is. Oh, interesting. Great. So, the first uh, teaching here is to uh, turn all mishaps into the path. The second is drive all blames into one, which basically means stop blaming. The third is be grateful to everybody. The fourth is um, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. The fifth is do good, avoid evil, appreciate lunacy, and pray for help. <laughs> and the last one is kind of the same as the first one, which is whatever you meet is the path. Are there any questions before we jump into these? Great. So, blame. Blame is a really great defense mechanism. Have you used it this week? <laughs> some people have an inclination to blame inwards, and some people their inclination is to blame outward. You should know who you are. When you first experience something painful, what's your first move usually? Is it to turn inward, or is it to lash out? Uh, whether you call it a projection, or transference, or denial, or displacement, um, blame helps you preserve your self-identity. It helps you preserve the image you have of yourself. It serves a purpose. And from a more existential perspective, uh, blame serves to uh, keep the ego unaware of its flaws. Because if you're blaming, even if you're blaming yourself all the time, the ego never really has to absorb its flaws. You never have to look very closely. So you could say in some ways, I guess, that blame is kind of convenient. It's a quick way of avoiding something that uh, needs attention. 
And of course, we only use blame when we're in attack mode. And again, let's remember, some of us, we like attacking uh, ourselves, and some of us like attacking other people. Or some of us, the way we attack is we just attack paradigms. And I think uh, academia really uh, reinforces this. Blame is not a conflict resolution tool. <laughs> it's pretty destructive to any form of collaboration or conflict resolution. Um, and it's a really good way to hurt people you love. If you really want to destroy a relationship over time, just bring in a little blame. And it'll wear people out who you live with. Uh, blame them for small things every day. And uh, you have a year left in your relationship. So from a yogic perspective, we would say that blame is a form of violence, of harming. The other more subtle thing um, from a kind of contemplative perspective that's really important um, for those of you who really work with your mind, to work with your attitude to remember about blame, is that we're not very good at figuring each other out. So even when you blame someone, on the heels of blaming someone, we usually have kind of a theory about their behavior, but like mostly it's wrong. <laughs> um, and those of you who have training in psychology, you know this too, that like human beings are really bad at figuring out each other's behavior. Like any good psychologist will say, I, I, you know, I don't know why this person's behaving the way they're behaving. And not only that, they don't know why they're behaving the way they're behaving. We don't really understand why people do the things that they do. The only thing that we can get close to that starts to undercut blame is intention is being mindful of our intention and seeing when we have in our intention this energy of blame, which I'm going to talk about. <coughs> blame is also a form of projection. Are you familiar with this term, projection? Projection is when human beings defend themselves against their own unconscious either uh, impulses or characteristics or qualities, both the positive and the negative. Um, they deny the existence of certain qualities about themselves and project it onto other people or onto a religion or onto a practice. I have a friend who's kind of rude. I like every quality of them, but they're rude. Um, 
And uh, when, whenever we go out, I always notice that they comment on the way other people are rude. <laughs> so like, if we're at a restaurant, they'll think that the server is rude. It's really interesting to see that. Do you know people like this? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, this was one of Freud's contributions to the idea of projection, is that Freud thought that um, when somebody was relationally projecting, that the person they were projecting onto did have some of that quality, that, that the person who is doing the projection disavowed. Does that make sense? So it's not just that you project it onto anyone, but you, do ha you just have a radar for that quality being present or absent in other people. So the, the first teaching there, turning all mishaps into the path, do you see that one? That leads directly into not blaming. If you turn something difficult into a path, if you can't contain it, you'll, if it wants to spill out, it will spill out as blame, you see? So not blaming is one way of... Um, not spilling. And I would say that this is true uh, even of politicians. I think it's so easy to take all of these various um, officials that Donald Trump is um, appointing and kind of flatten them out and saying, oh, I hate that person or I hate those values that person stands for. If you're a psychotherapist, when someone is listening to, um, when you're listening to someone talk, um, one of the things you want to listen for with people um, as they're in therapy for a while is that when they start to describe important people in their life, like a mother, father, siblings, etc., um, that they describe them multidimensionally. When somebody still has a lot of like unprocessed feelings around the past, around like a father or like these figures that are big in our lives, they describe them in a really one-dimensional way. Like they tell you one story or like three stories they've always had about a sibling or whatever who's caused them grief. And one of the signs that some therapy is working is that bodhicitta is, is emerging. <laughs> which is they can start to describe the person with more dimensions. This is true especially if you've ever um, been divorced. You know. um, I think one sign someone is healing from divorce or separation is that um, they can start to tell different stories about the person who they once loved. They might never want to have anything to do with them ever again, but um, the person's not flat. You know. So anyways, I notice this these days because every morning I read the New York Times and I'm kind of amazed that um, as much as I like a lot of their journalism, um, they can take like a human being, 
even a human being who I don't particularly care about and whose values go against every single thing I believe in, and, and kind of flatten them out in a way that seems um, somehow to contribute to poor conversation and the inability to turn what's happening into a path, even socially. You know. So I, I say this just because you can see a lot of these teachings both at a personal level, but also kind of a larger social, social level also. So let me read to you um, a um, description of the Dalai Lama again. But this is from uh, Norman Fisher, who is a Zen teacher uh, living in California. It is true that our hearts will be tender and tears will come to our eyes when we see suffering. Recently, I was in Northern Ireland with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and we were listening to stories of victims of the troubles there. A woman who could no longer walk, a man who could no longer see, a murderer whose heart and spirit had been broken, and probably for the rest of his life by what he had done. And His Holiness cried to hear their stories. And yet, the same afternoon, only a short while later, he was laughing uproariously as he yanked on the beard of a Catholic priest and yanked on the beard of a Protestant minister, between whom he was standing for a photo op. He was so overcome by hilarity, it seemed as if he'd lost it. The picture of his holiness cracking up as he held both white beards to either side of him was in every European paper the next day. So here is the paradox. When we feel a real sympathy with other people and we stop blaming them, uh, gratitude develops. If you are bitter about the past, gratitude will not be a quality that you know very well. If you hold a grudge, uh, gra gratitude will not be a quality you encounter very much. So in our practice, we need to cultivate a gratitude. And you might think, oh my God, I now have to do all this other work. <laughs> I was already trying to <coughs> cultivate flexible hamstrings, a daily meditation practice, some time for study. Now I also have to develop gratitude. But remember, gratitude is just a byproduct. It's a byproduct of not blaming. If you don't blame, you will be more easily, you will more easily access gratitude. And wouldn't that be nice? when you're dying. Wouldn't that be nice while you're dying to feel a sense of gratitude for having been able to uh, have uh, a life? Even though it didn't turn out 
how you had planned it. <laughs> and even though uh, you never got um, the back bend that you really deserved, it <laughs> uh, doesn't matter anymore. There is no Instagram in the afterlife. <laughs> but wouldn't that be nice to be able to feel gratitude uh, when you're dying? Uh, grateful for our body, our genetics. Grateful for water and air. I live in uh, BC, and uh, I've been trying as best I can to learn about um, some of the indigenous cultures uh, that inhabited the area where I live um, before before I lived there anyways. And um, I've heard of this practice before, but then someone was telling me that this is a practice that uh, was once done in that, in that same area. So it's something that I keep thinking about. And the practice is, when somebody feels uh, lost, like they feel like their spirit has left them. Do you ever have this experience? You feel somehow like things aren't lined up. And uh, some of these qualities that I'm talking about tonight, bodhicitta and so on that your spirit has kind of left. Um, So the practice was, if somebody feels that their spirit has left them, they go out into the forest by themselves, as deep into the forest as they can trek. And then they scream as loud as they can, their own name. And they do this again and again and again. They scream their own name. And the idea is that uh, you yell your own name so that your spirit can hear it and come back to you. I really love this. You yell your name as loud as you can so your spirit can come back and inhabit your, your body, your heart. Have you tried it? I haven't tried it. I just, I've just been hearing about it. It's on my to-do list. I just have to go home. I haven't been home. But, but anyways, the reason why I mention this is because I think all of these practices that I'm describing are exactly the same. Uh, they're about uh, sitting still and settling down so you can feel again what's important. They're about looking at the problems you have in your relationships. Does anybody here have problems in their relationships? <laughs> that includes colleagues, and, you know. 
and, and using all of this as part of your path. And I know that everything that I've said tonight, all of you have heard already. Everybody here has read and most people here are probably into contemplative practice of some kind and you've probably heard every sentence that I've said before. But it's a completely different thing to practice it. To have this as a kind of attitude that structures how you move and how you think and how you act and perceive and walk and breathe. So, thank you very much. Um, I've been talking for an hour. So, why don't we have a five minute break? Does that sound like enough time? A five minute break, and then we can have a little discussion. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.